tweak some this week. Is that right? So like you got a lot of stuff on your plate. Thanks for being here. Um, my name is Willis. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, if I don't know you, I saw a few new faces today. Would love to meet you. Would love to hear a little bit of your story. What brings you to RUF? Um, how things are going? Um, we are in the next. What we I've talked told you about how Revelation is like kind of the series of movie trailers. Who watched the show Black Black Mirror? Um, a few people. It's like it's just this show, and like each episode was directed by a different person. So each show had kind of its own little flavor. That's kind of the way Revelation. Each movie trailer is kind of a different perspective on the last things. I'm going to move that before I knock it over. <laughs> and we come in our passage tonight to the next retelling of this story of what happens between Jesus's resurrection and his return. And um, it's almost like God recruited Quentin Tarantino to direct this particular movie trailer because it's like, it's wrathful, it's dark, it's violent. Where's the good news here? Um, who loves a good Western? Raise your hand if you like Westerns. Okay, there's some Western lovers here. I love a good Western. What's the best one? What's the best Western? Not the hotel. Okay, bad joke. That failed. All right, cross that off the list. What's the best Western? Your favorite one. Now you get it. It's okay. Good joke. Bad delivery. Don't go there. Just keep on moving. Tombstone. Anybody like Tombstone the best? I like Tombstone the best. Best Western. <laughs> I've got to stop saying that. Uh, so there's a scene in Tombstone. If you haven't seen it, um, the, the plot of most Westerns is basically the same thing. So like, you'll, I'll catch you right up to speed easily here. Bad guys are in town. The sheriff kind of goes and he realizes like, oh, the bad guys are in town. And then he leaves for various reasons. And then he comes back. And he kind of kicks the tail of one of the outlaws. And he says to the first outlaw he meets, he sends him to tell the others. He says, run, you cur, and tell the other curs the law is coming. You tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me. You may not like Westerns, but I think we all like the idea of justice, Right? a wrathful reckoning for those who deserve it. And yet, I think a lot of us feel pretty ill at ease with the wrath of God. You know, the idea that God is wrathful. That's our focus tonight, the wrath of God. This evening, I hope that we'll not only voice our honest questions and kind of grapple with those questions that we have, the discomfort we sometimes feel with God's wrath. hope that we don't just understand God better, understand His wrath more, but actually come to love and value the wrathfulness of God itself, the wrath of God itself, to love him more because of his wrath, to place our hope and our trust in him more because of his wrath, not like in spite of it or like, I really just love the Jesus part, the whole wrath of God part. I'm not really super comfortable with that. I'm going to kind of bracket that off. I want us to love God more because of his wrath. So tonight in Revelation 8 through 10, we'll see the direction of God's wrath, the justice of God's wrath, and the heart of God's wrath. Direction, justice, and heart of God's wrath. So before we go there, let's pray. Father God, we come and when we look at you, when you reveal yourself to us in Revelation, we see things that we do not know how to wrap our minds around. We see things that offend us, that make us angry. We see things that comfort us and delight us. And you just present yourself to us as a real person and real people offend us. So 
we ask Jesus that by your Holy Spirit you would draw us into your heart such that we would not be offended and walk away from you or offended and shy away from you, but instead that we would see your goodness and that we would move towards you and give thanks that you are our God and no other. So I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, first, the direction of God's wrath. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. That's gross. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So in chapters 8 and 9, seven angels with trumpets, they're standing in the throne room of God, and one by one, each of them blows their trumpet. Well, the first six, actually, blow their trumpets. Each trumpet signals the time has come for a punishment, a plague, wrath from God upon the earth. So first off, just to clear the air, remember this is apocalyptic literature. This is not telling us precisely how God will punish people, like precisely what his punishment will look like. So we shouldn't be imagining that at some point in the future, there's going to be like actual blood coming down with hailstones. The point is to tell us that God punishes sin. He punishes it in direct tangible ways and if you read through you can go do this tonight if you want read through chapter 8 and 9 you will see that these plagues are pretty comprehensive like people the earth itself different kinds of plagues this is saying god punishes all sin god's wrath reaches towards all sin and then we see upon whom this punishment is brought so i'm just going to kind of skip through all the plagues again not because they're not important but just because like there's a lot of repetition there. You can go read those plagues, specifically what they contain. Um, and then we get to this part at the end of kind of the middle of the passage, chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone, wood, which cannot hear or see, uh, cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the people who are worshiping demons, idols of all sorts, murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, theft, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not like God doesn't care about other sins. It's just kind of representative, naming a few of the most pervasive sins we do. Um, note, the ones who experience these plagues are the ones who did not repent. So this is like a pretty simple point. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. The direction of God's wrath is towards sinners who don't repent. Not all sinners, like we're all sinners, but not all of us experience God's wrath. It's those who do not repent. So, flashback to how we become righteous, it's by repenting. And Jesus gives those who repent white robes, his perfect righteousness, to make us no longer guilty, no longer deserving of punishment, but righteous in God's sight. That offer is always open even to the worst of sinners, to the people who do the things on this list. God's punishing in his wrath um, is upon those who don't do that. They don't turn from their sin to God. So, okay, God's wrath is directed towards unrepentant sinners. Is that fair, though? You know, like, that doesn't always feel fair to us. I think we all have our own ideas of justice and fairness, and, you know, maybe we've become accustomed to justice in terms of how it plays out in our government or our friendships, and like we have kind of a tit-for-tat system. But the justice of God and the wrath of God, is it fair? And 
if we have kind of a vague discomfort with it or uncertainty about that, we're going to hold him at arm's length because you can't love someone you don't trust. And if he's not just, we can't trust him. So is God's wrath just? I think we have at least two main objections to the wrath of God. There's others, right? There are others, and we can talk about those. But time-wise, we'll focus on two. First, just because people break God's laws doesn't mean they deserve to be punished. Right? We kind of feel that. Like, okay, God has these laws. Do we actually literally deserve to be punished just because we break like his laws? Maybe they seem arbitrary. Maybe we feel like, I never agreed to his laws. Like, why am I being held accountable for that? So, the first, do we deserve God's wrath? And secondly, even if we do deserve his wrath, eternal punishment in hell seems pretty harsh. Right? Like a pretty intense punishment, even if you do a lifetime of sinning. Right? Just like straight sin all the way through 80, 90 years, maybe 100 if you're lucky. But then eternal punishment, that seems pretty disproportionate. So that's the second question. Is God's wrath proportionate? And I'm just going to go ahead and preface this with like, I'm not going to tie up these questions with like an answer that's like a pretty bow on top. And you're like, oh, great. Walk away feeling great about the wrath. You're not supposed to feel great about the wrath of God. It's supposed to make you repent. So we should feel very uncomfortable with the wrath of God. But I want us to see how like, okay, maybe I don't fully understand it, but I can see how it is just or how it could be just. I can move towards God in the midst of this. Okay, all of that. First, one by one. So do we really deserve God's wrath? Okay, it makes sense that we ask this question because we belong in this secular kingdom. So if you remember back in the fall, talking about the secular kingdom that we live in, which brackets out God is like fairly irrelevant or not super influential on our lives. In this kingdom, we feel like we belong to ourselves. And if I belong to myself, nobody gets to tell me what to do except me, right? And I should only be held accountable to somebody else's standard if I, like, sign on to it or voluntarily say, like, yeah, I'm going to be held accountable to the laws of America by living here. So, sure, I guess I deserve punishment if I speed or whatever. Um, But God claims in the Bible that actually he owns you because he made you. That actually makes a big difference. He says he owns you because he made you. The inventor defines the meaning. If I invent something which I've had a lot of good ideas, but then I realized that they've already been invented. So maybe some of you are like me, frustrating. Anyway, if I invent something, I invent it with purpose, and that's just its purpose. That's just what it's for. The claim of the Bible is that God made you, and he made you with a specific purpose. So because God made you, he also loves you desperately. Like I love my kids more than other kids. Sorry, all you other kids out there. I love my kids more because I made them. They're mine. And because he loves you, he wants what's best for you. And guess what? This is like the salient point. What's best for you is him and his ways because he's the best thing that there is. If the Bible is true, if its claims are true, if it's worth investigating like we're investigating right now, he's the source of all goodness. He is goodness itself. He is love. And so he's the best thing there is for you. And so the ways that he calls you to, the obedience that he calls you to, it's just, it's the air we breathe, the water we swim in. Rebelling against it, rebelling against God, is like a fish dragging itself, itself up out of the water, onto the beach, like, freedom, yes! It's like, okay, yeah, like you're free to do that, but you're going to die. So if God owns us, if he defines our purpose, if he calls us to submit to his purpose for us, out of love for us, because it's good for us, still, if all that's true, 
Question number two, eternal punishment in hell forever, it does seem pretty harsh for disobedience. Is God's wrath proportionate? In 1921, there's a corpse of an American soldier, unknown, unidentified. We know he's American, we know he's ours, don't know his name. Um, this corpse was placed in a tomb of white marble at Arlington National Cemetery. Some of you all have been there. Um, on the west face of the tomb are inscribed the words, Here it rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. It's known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, if you haven't been, you should go. It's, a, it's kind of an incredible experience. Um, it's a place to honor all the American soldiers who died in battlefields across the world, but whose bodies were never identified. And it's guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, since 1937, by the tomb guards who pace, you know, they're members of the American military, and they pace with these incredibly measured, precise, you know, movements, day and night, rain or shine, snow, wind, heat, you know, sub-zero temperatures, all the time to guard this tomb out of respect. And this is the creed of these tomb guards. This is their creed. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted, and the responsibility to bestow it upon me never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfection. Through the years of diligence and praise and the discomfort of the elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he who commands the respect I protect, his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounded by well-meaning crowds by day, alone in the thoughtful peace of night, this soldier will in honored glory rest under my eternal vigilance. The respect, the honor, the ceremony they show may be unparalleled, you know, in any other place or thing in the world. Why? Because it is proportionate to that which they honor. Those who have sacrificed their lives to protect us, to protect our country, to protect freedom. God's wrath towards our sin is proportionate to the worth and the honor of the offended party himself. And his worth is infinite. His value is immeasurable. I mean, we don't want a God whose value is limited, who's small, who it doesn't really matter if you offend against him. We, if, we, if we want God, we want him to be the biggest thing there is, majestic, incredible. And that is the way the Bible presents God. And so, um, His glory and goodness is worthy of all our respect and obedience. And apathy towards the law of God or disobedience against it warrants an eternal punishment. We might not feel cool with that, but that's the way He sees it. And I think we can understand how that like makes sense in the paradigm of our world in which Punishment is not only proportionate to the sin committed, but the, the offended party, the one who sinned against. If you attempted to spit on the tomb of the unknown soldier, you would face immediate and drastic consequences. And yet all of us have spit in the face of God. All of us deserve his wrath. Listen, I understand there's, there's probably more pushback. All of us feel that. There's more to talk about and be seen. Um... And even if uh, we can have those conversations, I would love to. Even if God's wrath is deserved and proportionate, even if you believe everything I just said, and you're like, okay, I get it. We still struggle to understand how the wrathfulness of God is connected to his love. You know, <laughs> the thing that we, we appreciate and value, like he came to us in love. That's what formed the relationship. How does it jive with his wrath? 
1 John 4, 8, God is love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is wrath. God is love. The Bible says he's wrathful. We're seeing that in our passage right now. How do we like combine those two things? So we turn there now to understand the heart of God's wrath. The heart of God's wrath is love. I mean, I didn't read that in a book somewhere. I came to that by reading this passage over and over and seeing what was happening here. I hope you'll see it too. The heart of God's wrath is love. We could go so many directions here all through the Bible. It's like written on every page. But I want us to see two things. Okay, First, wrath is rooted in God's Trinitarian love. Trinitarian, Trinity. God is three. God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And each member of the Trinity loves the other members of the Trinity. This is, you know, beyond probably our like full understanding, but this is the way the Bible talks about it. Jesus loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves both. So each member of the Trinity wants the others, what is best for the others, wants the others to be honored and respected because the members of the Trinity know each other, know God better than we ever could, and they love because they see that goodness. They love and they want the glory for the other and feels wrath when the other members are instead dishonored or ignored and sinned against. Okay, I love my wife more than anything else, so sorry, coffee. Don't love you as much as my wife. You know, Sorry, Tombstone. Sorry, movies. Sorry, music. Sorry, other people. I love my wife the most, right? And I'm actually united with her in a God-given picture of the union that the Trinity has with itself and the picture of the unity that Christ has with his church, but that's another topic. Okay, so I'm united with her. If anyone tries to hurt or dishonor my wife, I will respond with wrath, right? My love for her will express itself with wrath toward the other party who's trying to injure or offend my wife until that threat is gone, obliterated, right? That's not because I'm a good husband. It's because, like, I'm just a husband. We do this for the people that we love. Mothers do this for their children. The heart of God's wrath is God's Trinitarian love for the other members of the Trinity. But that's not all, okay? Wrath is also rooted in love for his creatures, his creation, us. We see this over and over in the Bible. But even here in Revelation, at the beginning of this episode of Judgment, we see, I can't remember if this is in our passage or not, but it's in the beginning of chapter 8. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So at the outset of all these punishments, all this wrath being poured out, the scent in God's nostrils, the thought in his mind is the prayers of the saints. I mean, if, if you remember back to last week's um, passage, chapter 4 and 5, we see the saints crying out to God, How long, O Lord? Are you not watching? Did you not notice when we were martyred, killed for the faith? And God says, I noticed. Wait but a little longer. He cares. He notices even as his wrath is poured out, the reason is because he loves his creatures who are hurt when evil hurts his creatures. The heart of God's wrath is his love for his creatures. But all of that pales in comparison to the proof of God's wrath and his love that we find in the work of Jesus. Right? So let's turn to that. Where do we find the cross in this passage? In chapter 10, you'll notice the seventh trumpet never blows. So there's six of them. The seventh one doesn't blow. How come? We're not told what's happened because it's a mystery. It's sealed up. They say the prophets were talking about it. In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
The mystery of God will one day be fulfilled. He's saying the cross will accomplish its final work. Because guess what? The wrath of God was never his full plan, right? God knows that wrath is not alone enough to save sinners. Wrath only punishes sinners. The mystery of God is that the cross is the manifestation of all of God's wrath and all of his love at the very same time. If God did not have wrath against sinners, Jesus wouldn't have willingly taken all of that wrath in our place. That's what the cross means. So hear this. Don't miss this. No wrath, no gospel. No punishment, no grace. Put it a different way, we see the love of God most clearly in the moment when he sees his wrath most clearly. The God who visits judgment upon sinners is also the God who takes the sin of sinners upon himself that we sinners might experience only God's love. Did you think, some of us can walk around, and like, I am not judging or belittling if you thought this at all. Did you think that God forgave sin because he just, he's kind of willing to overlook it? Like, he's not really that worried about it. He's like, ah, man, I know it's like not good that they did that thing, but like, I just love them, so I'm just going to kind of like forget about that. That's not a description of God. That's a description of the devil. The devil has no problem with you just kind of floating around in your sin and pretending to be a good Christian and going to church, but never recognizing the reality that you deserve God's wrath, but you don't get it because Jesus took it for you. That's the gospel. That's the heart of it. That's what it is. God's a different person than that. He overlooks not one sin. The wrath of God lands on every single sin ever committed, either as the unrepentant suffer punishment for God on the sins they commit, or as Jesus suffered the punishment on the cross for all the sins committed by those who repent and believe that Jesus did that for them. Jesus did that for you. He did that. Believe it and love him. The wrath of God has always been meant to turn us towards Jesus to escape that wrath. So what do we do with this? How do we live different because God is a God of wrath. First thing, and this is, I hope, obvious, fear God and repent. If you're here and you know, you just know that you're living in rebellion against God, apathy toward Him, I'm telling y'all, don't dilly-dally with damnation. Don't mess around with this, guys. I mean, we've all heard stories, we all know people who die young. I don't want that to be you guys. Do not put this off. Hebrews talks about as long as today is called today, there's a moment for repentance, there's a time, and this time is now, you guys. Do not put it off. Repent today. And if you turn from him and ask for forgiveness, he'll forgive you, y'all. There's no like hoop you have to jump through or wall you have to climb over. Forgiveness is free. Repent today. Second thing to do different, remember your salvation, you guys. Remember what you were saved from. Right? Like, if you're a Christian, it can, you can start feeling just like in kind of this weird rut where it's like, I mean, I, I guess my life is a little different. Than what I was. No, like, the difference, I mean, there are changes that happen in this life. That's sanctification. We could talk a lot about that, you all. And I'd love to tell you my story of how God has changed my life drastically. But the main event is that I will have eternity with God, my Father, in heaven. <laughs> and I'm not going to be punished for my sins for eternity. That's awesome. It's beautiful. Pay attention to that, y'all. Call that to mind every day and thank him for that. Jesus did that for you because he wanted you to experience that. Okay, this is good. This is another thing, y'all. Everybody in this room has been hurt, cheated, betrayed, 
in some way, right? For those of y'all who have been abused, manipulated, mistreated, lied to in a thousand ways, and you never got justice, that person never apologized. They never got found out. And they may never be convicted in this life or brought to justice. God saw. He knows. And he didn't overlook it. He doesn't just pass over that. There will be a reckoning for that person. Every sin gets punished. Or there will be repentance. Some of y'all in here may be thinking like, actually, honestly, that person, I hope they don't repent. I hope they burn in hell forever. I get that. Right? I'm not going to tell you that like you're wrong for feeling anger toward their sin. So for you, it may be praying, Lord, please give me the love for this, even this person, that I would be glad to see them escape your wrath in Christ. And some will not, some will not do that. Right? We don't know. We can't name those names, who those will be, but someone will do that. And I'm telling you, their sin will be punished. You don't have to worry about that. That's what forgiveness is. We can forgive punishment because we know God punishes. That's why we don't have to punish. God punishes. Last thing, y'all. Reach the lost. Every non-Christian sitting next to you in class, living in your hall, in your pledge class, your hometown, each one of them, if they're not a Christian, they're aimed at hell. That's where they're going. And the God-ordained means by which people go from being aimed at hell to being aimed at heaven is people like us telling them the good news. Right? So love them. Befriend them. Get to know them. Look for chances to tell them the gospel. Don't be intentionally offensive, right? But be willing to offend someone by telling them something that you know is true that may offend them because it will save them forever if they believe it. Their life is at stake. Ask God, who's one person? Lord, who's one person you want me to share the gospel with this week, this semester? Who's one person? And pray for that person. If he brings someone to mind, pray for that person and look for those opportunities, y'all. It's scary. It's scary. But guess what? It's not as scary as we feel like it is, you know? And when someone sees that you care enough about them to honestly tell them, hey, listen, I think you're headed for a bad place and I know that Jesus loves you. Here's what you should do to be right with God. Here's what he's done for you. They get that. So let me encourage you to do that. And also, if you're like super freaked out by that, like what does that look like? Schedule a meeting with Anna or me. We would love Anna or I. Anna or me. Schedule a meeting with me. Yeah, Anna or me. There we go. Schedule a meeting with us. We'd love to talk to you about like how to share the gospel. What, what's scary in that for you and how to think about that? In Jesus on the cross, God expresses his wrath as love for sinners. And he invites all to repent that we might escape his wrath and experience the safety and belonging we were made for in him. Amen. Father God.